Psalm 100. We're going to take a break from Missio Christi this morning to talk about Thanksgiving. Not Thanksgiving, the holiday coming up on Thursday, though that kind of prompts us, but the Thanksgiving that predates the United States of America, the Thanksgiving which is shown to us, mandated to us by Scripture. We're not talking about Thanksgiving the noun, the holiday coming this Thursday. We're talking about, we're talking about Thanksgiving the verb, the action of giving thanks to God. So we're going to look at Psalm 100. Now, Psalm 100 is called, uh, the title given to it by the psalmist, a psalm for thanksgiving. And this was a psalm that was read in the second temple period when God's people would gather. And it was, it was saying, rather, at the moment that they would give a thank offering to the Lord. Thank offerings were given in this context for mercies that the Lord had shown his people. And so they'd say, Lord, you've been so merciful to us. And so they would bring a sacrifice. And as they were bringing that sacrifice thanks of thanksgiving, they would be singing this song in the second temple period. So let's read it. It says, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Lord, we say together this morning that we agree with the scriptures, that you are good, that your loving kindness, your mercy is everlasting. Thank you, God, that we can't out it, we can't outdo it, we can't outrun it, but your loving kindness and your grace and your mercy are so radical in your expression of them through Christ. And you're a faithful God. Good times and in bad times, when stuff is smooth and when it seems like our worlds are falling apart, we say that, God, you are good and you're faithful. And we ask that you would do now in us and in this church what you have endeavored to do in your people throughout history. You would give us a heart of thankfulness, an attitude of gratitude, that we would be right in this area. And as we get right in this area, our lives would be set right in all areas. And so Holy Spirit, do a work in us here at the CARP campus, in Ventura at that campus, and in the church with a capital C. Do a deep work in us. Make us a people who respond rightly to who you are and what you've done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 As I was thinking about this this week, I realize that there are certain things that God has to say in Scripture that become a real telling commentary on humanity. Certain things that God has to say in Scripture, and by fact, uh, by way of the fact that He had to say them, it comments on how messed up we are. For example, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 4, God says to His people, You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block in front of a blind person. But you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. Okay, wait a minute. Why does God have to tell people not to put a tripping rock, a stumbling block in front of someone who is blind? 
I mean, how messed up are we? Was God wrong? Are we to say, oh God, we would never do that. No, God's right. You're wrong. That's just who we are as people. God had to say, don't curse a deaf man. He can't hear you. Don't stand there behind his back. And don't put a rock in front of a blind man to trip him. It's to our shame that God would ever have to say something like that to us. It's kind of like in uh, Leviticus 11 where God says, you shall not eat bats. (laughs) Oh, really? I so wanted to eat bats. Brothers, sisters, pray for me. I'm just, I'm struggling. I want those bat buffalo wings so bad. I just, oh, there's turmoil in my heart, but God forbid bats. Really? Don't eat bats? I mean, it shows how ridiculous we are. The God had to say, don't eat bats. Why would you eat a bat? (laughs) Certain things God says in scripture has to tell us that demonstrate, illustrate, bring to mind something about us. Have you ever known, most of you know, somebody who for some reason or another cannot or will not say thank you at the appropriate time? Have you ever known anybody like that? At the appropriate time, for some reason, they either cannot or they will not simply say thank you when they ought to say thank you. We've all known somebody like that. And most of us would agree that there's something not right with that person. That's just not right. You just gave them a wonderful big gift and they just... Thank you. There's something, it's like they've never matured beyond infancy. Because even with little babies, as soon as their little brains start to develop, what do parents do? They, they teach them this, right? They give them something and they say, oh, oh, what do you say? Thank you. We all know that the little kid is supposed to say thank you. Oh, what do you say? Thanks, mom. Okay, perfect. I mean, this is so expected in our society. We didn't even let other people correct our kids on this. You know, you go to the zoo, you buy the tickets and the zoo attendant at the little box office hands your kid a ticket and your kid's just like, "Mm," and the zoo attendant's like, "Mm, what do you say? (laughs) Normally, you know, you treat my kid like that. I'm going to hit you, but with, he should say, thank you. Both the kids should say, thank you. And so I hit them. Bam. Say, thank you. What are you doing? You're embarrassing me. We all somehow intuitively understand that it's right and good to say thank you, to express gratitude at the right time. And when somebody fails to do that, we think there's just something not right. And yet when it comes to our relationship with God and our response to him, it seems that throughout history in God's people, there's been a lack of a heart of thanksgiving an attitude of gratitude. This problem is pervasive and it's historical. Throughout the history of humanity, God has had to deal with this. In the Old Testament, when God set up the temple worship structure with the Levitical priests, he assigned certain persons in Israel that when Israel got together, their only job was to give thanks and to lead others in giving thanks. That was their only job. We see this in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. We see it in the book of Nehemiah. That there were certain persons in Israel and God said to them, through Moses, of course, that when Israel gets together, here's your job. Okay, here's your ministry. Here's your mission. You want to be on mission? When you all get together, say, thanks, God, and lead the rest of Israel in saying thanks. That's messed up. 
that God has to do that. That God has to assign people from among his people to make sure that his people have a right response to who he is and what he's done. But the New Testament puts us in that very same position as ones who are called to give thanks continually. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, through him then, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. After this incredible Christological exposition, this great explanation of who Christ is in the book of Hebrews, the richest in all the Bible, the richest explanation of who Christ is and what he has done. We have to be reminded, there is a summary statement that in response we should continually give thanks then. It's to our shame that we need to be told to do that. It's how awry our hearts are. It should be this overwhelming response of gratitude to what God has done for us and in us through Christ. In Luke chapter 17, there were 10 lepers. And Jesus was traveling through Israel and the 10 lepers spotted Christ and Surely they had heard about him. And you've got to understand the leper's plight that as soon as it was discovered that they had leprosy, they were removed from their family, removed from their community and removed from the worshiping community. They were exiled, marginalized, put out to the wilderness, put aside. It was discovered they had uh, leprosy. They would never hold their spouse again. They would never hold their kids again. They would miss out on all the aspects of communal life. There were 10 of them, 10 of them together because who else would they be with? And they see Christ walking and certainly they had heard something. And they say to him, son of David, have mercy on us. They wanted to be healed. They wanted to be cleansed. They wanted to be restored. They wanted to be made brand new. And they thought the Lord could do it. And the Lord in consonance with Levitical law, the law of the Old Testament said, go and show show yourself to the priests and offer the offering for the healing of leprosy. They hadn't been healed yet. But Christ commanded them to go in obedience and to obey the law for those who would be healed. And as they went in obedience, they experienced the healing. All 10 of them were healed of leprosy miraculously. And then it says, one turned back, fell on his face at the feet of Jesus and gave him thanks and glory. And Christ said, where are the other nine? Were there not 10 of you who were cleansed and only one has an attitude of gratitude, a right response? And then he makes a scathing remark. He says, and this one who has come back is a Samaritan. In other words, in the mind of Israel, he, he wasn't even one of God's people. Israel hated the Samaritans. They thought that the Samaritans were outside the promises of God, the covenant of God, the blessing of God, and they hated them racially, religiously, and geographically. And Jesus says to Israel, one came back and he was a Samaritan. In other words, shame on my people. Those who should be the most grateful of all, the covenant people, those who have received the promises. They didn't come back, but this one Samaritan came back. Why is that? 
Well, what is it in the human heart that doesn't respond rightly to a God who has done so wonderfully, so incredibly beyond imagination? What is it? I don't know what it is. We see it exhibited in Israel over and over again that though they were brought out of Egypt where their backs were beaten, their lives were dominated and their children were killed. Though they were brought out of Egypt, we see them over and over again in the wilderness complaining. When they should be saying, thank you, God, thank you, we were slaves and we've been set free, everything is brand new. Instead, they're continually complaining. And we see this among Christians as well. We should be the most thankful, psycho, happy humans on earth. But it seems that we fall into the same rut. But perhaps we need to be reminded that we were sick, wounded, putrid, and oozing with sin like the lepers. And the holy one, the pure one, the beautiful one, touched us and restored us, made us brand new, gave us new life, hope and a future, freedom from guilt, sin, the devil, the burden and the weight. Perhaps we need to be reminded of that from which we've been saved. Maybe you've fallen into some sort of silly liberalism and you've given up on a literal hell. I got to tell you, Jesus spoke about hell more than he did heaven. And it wasn't a pretty place. We've been saved from hell, from the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and brought into life and peace and freedom, forgiveness, acceptance. We've been adopted. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. We are now children of the king. We have an inheritance in heaven and we're seated in the heavenly places with him. And it seems that what God desires in response, among some other things, is a simple attitude of gratitude, just thankfulness. And it seems that what this does is it pleases God. Any, any sincere Christian wants to please God, right? I mean, with our lives, we're like, oh, I want to please you, Lord. The attitude of gratitude pleases the Lord. Look what Psalm 69, 30 and 31 says. It says, I will praise the name of the Lord with song." and magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull or horns or hooves. It'll please the Lord more than sacrifice, more than religion, more than showing up, more than going through the motions. A simple, heartfelt thankfulness is pleasing to God. And I don't know about you, but in my own life, there's a sense that I want to please God with my life. With the meditations of my heart, I want to please God. Now, we need to understand that positionally speaking, God is pleased with us because of what Christ has done. We can speak of the doctrine of propitiation. To propitiate means to satisfy. Christ is a propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath, standard, and judgment of God on our behalf. So when God looks at us through the lens of Christ, he's satisfied with you. That should be so freeing to know that. Because of Christ, it's not as always mad with you or he's just like, oh, I can't believe that guy. He is killing me. That's not what he's doing. 
If you're in Christ, positionally speaking, he is satisfied because Christ was a sacrifice who satisfied the wrath, the judgment, the standard of God. But part of the gig of Christian life is to bring the practical in line with the positional. Positionally, God is satisfied with us. Practically speaking, are we pleasing God in our lives? This attitude of gratitude seems to be what pleases God so much. That's what the psalmist said. That's what Jesus displayed. When he said, okay, one came back, where are the other nine? He rejoiced in the fact that the one came back. It seems to please God when this thanksgiving overflows from our lives. And notice that it's a verbal, visceral, real expression. Okay, it's real. It's passionate. Don't tell me you're not passionate. Everyone is passionate about something. Some of you just aren't passionate about Jesus. But everyone's passionate about something. Notice what it said in Psalm 69. I will praise the name of God with song. Okay, there is singing, this verbal, real expression. You cannot read the Bible and get away from the idea of song and singing. I'm sorry. I don't care how you feel about singing. I sing horribly, can't, couldn't sing my way out of a wet paper bag. But what we see in the Bible are these real, vibrant, expressive displays of adoration toward God. David dancing in his choners. Lifting our hands in praise, dancing the Lord, celebrating, bowing before him, on our face before him. You can't escape these things and you can't escape singing. There's something that God has ordained that he's stoked with singing. I mean, that's a God thing, right? You can't escape it in scripture. So real is this fact that God himself sings. Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17 The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save, a warrior who will save, it could be translated. He will rejoice over you, over us with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. Look at this phrase. He will rejoice over you with singing. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Does that not blow your mind? That God's love is so beautiful and infinite that he would sing over us. Listen, who are we to be sang over? In light of who God is, but because of his character and his immense nature of love, his unfathomable nature of love, he sings over us. And, and it's a scathing report on the church that we barely sing on all churches. How is it that we have a God who would sing over us and yet we barely sing over him? Very limited displays, very controlled, proper. There's something wrong with that. Perhaps it is as a church in America, we haven't suffered enough to truly see the goodness of God. We're too fat, we're too happy, we're too apathetic. A church in China that's forced underground sings differently. A church in Saudi Arabia who has martyrs from among their number sings differently. The church in Iran right now is singing differently. Christians 
in metal containers in prison for their faith in the country of Eritrea, Africa, sing differently than the American church. We can't beat ourselves up about this. This is our experience, but we should sober ourselves. I found that the more heartbreak I experience in this life, the more thankful I am to God, the more convinced I am of his goodness. I don't know why that is. I think it's just the grace of God. But the more that my heart has been shattered, my world has fallen apart, the more beautiful God has begun, the more I am convinced that surely God is good, as Psalm 73 says. And, and as I open my mouth in prayer, the first thing that comes forth is praise. And his grace in our lives will elicit more praise if we choose to be consistent with the Bible where we see praise. Why are you so downcast? Oh, my soul, I will yet praise you, my God, for thou art great and greatly to be praised, the psalmist says. In good times and in bad times, in tribulations and trials and difficulties and tumults, God is good and worthy to be praised. And we often in the difficult times of life want to know what God's will is, don't we? I've asked that question so many times in the last few months. The Bible is explicit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That makes it easy. God, what's your will in this situation? Well, let's start here. Give thanks. Not because of the situation. The situation stinks, but because of who God is and how he's immeasurably bigger than the situation. Ephesians says a similar thing in chapter 5 says that we should be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. Always giving thanks for all things. God's will for you, give thanks. Are there uncertainties in your life? Difficulties? Financial ruin? Sickness? Give thanks. Colossians 3.17 makes it real clear. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is God's will for us that we would give thanks. Here's why. Number one, when we have this heart of thanksgiving, this attitude of gratitude, number one, it keeps God in the right place in our lives. It keeps him exalted, magnified, lifted on high, being adored over and above the circumstances, okay? When when we cultivate this attitude of gratitude, this heart of thanksgiving, it keeps God in the right place. Number two, it keeps us in the right place, down low, humble, dependent, praising, thanking, keeps God in the right place up high, keeps us in the right place down low. And I'll tell you what else, It keeps the devil at bay. When we have this attitude of gratitude and we move beyond grumbling and complaining, it keeps the devil at bay because the devil capitalizes upon the corollaries of complaining, such as anger, bitterness, wrath, malice. In fact, Ephesians chapter four says, be angry, but do not sin in your anger and don't let the sun go down on your anger, thereby giving the devil an opportunity That word opportunity in the Greek is the word tapos. It denotes a geographical location. In other words, when we do the opposite 
of an attitude of gratitude and a heart of thankfulness, and we move into that place of anger, bitterness, resentment, it gives the devil an open door to our lives. That's, that's the devil's territory. Thanks and praise is the territory of God. Bitterness, complaining, that's the devil's territory. And, and it opens our lives up, so to speak, to the schemes of the enemy. That's why it's God's will for us that we would give thanks. It keeps God in the right place, us in the right place, the devil in another place. And finally, it keeps life in perspective. Life can get so hairy sometimes. I mean, it it can seem to fall apart really quickly. But if we're in that place of praise and thanksgiving, not as a national holiday, but as a spiritual and real life style, it, it puts life in perspective. God's always bigger. He's in the right place. He's above. We're humble. We're free from that sense of entitlement, false expectation. Devil's kept at bay, so you're not buying into his lies and his deceit, his condemnation. Life is in perspective with an attitude of praise. That's why Psalm 100 says, shout joyfully. That's why God assigned people in Israel to lead the nation in thanking. That's why we're commanded at the end of the book of Hebrews to give thanks. That's why it's God's will that we would give thanks. And it says there, enter his gates with thanksgiving. The right way to approach God is with an attitude of gratitude. Listen, I think if we really lay a hold of this as God's people, life would be different, church would be different. We come into church so haphazardly, so just kind of, I'm showing up. It's almost as if God should be thankful or at least the pastor or somebody. We kind of show up and we've got our coffee and we're like, oh my gosh, someone's totally sitting in my seat. I can't believe it. And then we find our little seat and we're just like here, as if God should be thankful that you're here. You should be thankful you're not in hell. And we should come into the house God, house God with an overwhelming sense of praise for who he is and what he has done. Enter his gates, draw near to him with thanksgiving. And that word thanksgiving in the Hebrew is not a noun. It's not the holiday coming up this week. It's a verb. It's an action word. Get out of your mind that Thanksgiving is a noun. Forget the holiday. It's every day. It's a verb. It is the action of bringing to God the sacrifice of praise for what he's done for us and through us in Christ Jesus. And what that does is bring us into a place of intimacy. Second part of verse two says, come before him with joyful singing before him. In the Hebrew, it's got the word panim. It means face. This attitude of gratitude, this heart of thanksgiving brings us face to face with God. It's how we enter into his presence. It pleases him. It's FaceTime with God. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you, the scriptures promise. I just want to end by saying this. The opposite of thankfulness is complaining, right? That's the opposite. And um, don't you just love a person that complains all the time? Aren't they just the most fun to be around? They're just awesome, always complaining. You're just like, gosh, I want to hang out with you all the time. You're so killer. <laughs> no, we don't like them. I, I have a hard time with my kids when they complain. And you know, it's always after you gave them a gift and they're like, oh, awesome. It's not the right color. 
hers is bigger than mine. And you just want to just... Proverbs says that the rod chases the foolishness from a child's heart. You just... That, that, that... You never read the Bible? <laughs> that, that thing of complaining. I, when, when my kids do it, look, I know they're going to do it right after Christmas morning, right? They're going to get so spoiled, it's ridiculous. It's sinful for sure. Send me an email. It's, it's, they're going to get so spoiled. And then by Christmas afternoon, they're going to be complaining. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I'm going to snap. <laughs> that complaining makes me snap. You know what? makes God snap. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. Now, I don't think God's going to kill you. I think it's a different gig. But it's a display of his heart. And notice that it says, they became like those who complained in adversity, meaning this is not how God's people are supposed to be. Because of who God is, we're not supposed to be like those who complain in adversity. It was a scathing report on Israel that the Samaritan was the one who came back and gave thanks. We're not to be like those. We're not to be like the rest of the world because we have a great God who is great and greatly to be praised, who gives us peace that surpasses comprehension, who's bigger than the dramas, who's more beautiful than we can imagine, who's worthy of our praise at all times. And to not give it to him is just wrong. And to give it to him is beautiful. So let's do that. Amen? Lord, we pray that you would work this hard in us. Just work the word of God in us and through us. Keep us from being like Israel and the lepers who kept going on their way. Bring us to your feet, Lord, in humble adoration, praise, and worship. Lord, we're sorry for the ways that we neglect that in our corporate life together, in our private lives apart. We're sorry for the way we neglect that. And then we don't have a bigger view of who you are. Lord, get bigger. Get bigger in our church and in our lives. You're worthy of all the praise we could possibly muster up. Thank you for the example of the angels who see you and never cease to sing about your holiness. Make us such people. I encourage you guys today to do something you wouldn't normally do. Whatever that is, Let your expression of thankfulness toward God be extravagant. Get on your face, get on your knees. Sing louder than you've ever sang before. But let's really honor the Lord together.